KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. With the number of COVID-19 cases on the rise, hospitals are feeling the pressure. Either unvaccinated or incompletely vaccinated people are the ones that are coming into the hospital. I'm Christina Kim with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. People living in high-risk fire areas may soon have access to more affordable and extensive insurance coverage. The FAIR plan is a very important plan, and it's not perfect, and this ruling is trying to make it a little bit better. San Diego Rescue Mission will oversee Oceanside's homeless shelter and what to expect from Escondido's first-ever Pride celebration this weekend. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. COVID-19 infections across San Diego are surging, and county officials are bolstering their efforts to vaccinate more residents in an effort to slow the spread. The local spike in cases mirrors a nationwide trend, where health officials are now warning that the nation's COVID-19 situation is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Joining me with more on these developments is Dr. William Sang, a hospitalist at Kaiser Permanente San Diego. Welcome to Midday, Dr. Sang. Thank you very much for having me. This week, San Diego County saw an 82% increase in the number of COVID-19 cases. Are you and your team at Kaiser starting to feel the impact of this spike? Uh, yes, we are. We're, we're seeing both the ambulatory section also in the hospital as well. So we are seeing cases uh, steadily increase. The Delta variant is really the, the one that everybody is talking about that's concerning. You know, the San Diego County has been tracking it all along. It started with 16 cases a couple of weeks ago that went to 25 then to 52, and now it's 103. And yesterday, I think they came out with new numbers, but it's almost doubling every week. And we can see that. As we mentioned, many health officials are calling this the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Are the patients that you're treating mostly unvaccinated? Yes. So I would say over 80 to 90 percent are unvaccinated. And the reason is that um, the people who are vaccinated, some of them, even if they get infected because you have that immunity, you attack the virus. So your viral load in your body is much, much lower to a point where you're barely symptomatic. So maybe a little sore throat, a runny nose, and that's about it. And we actually picked them up on happenstance just because they're they're here to check out or they're there to get surgery or something and they they do a routine testing. They pick them up that way. There are people who come into the ambulatory symptomatic. Look, I've got a sore throat, cold. I just want to get it checked out. And then they test positive. And then they're the ones that come into the hospital and test positive there. Now, those predominantly are the unvaccinated or incompletely vaccinated, meaning they had one dose and didn't follow up for the second dose. So either unvaccinated or incompletely vaccinated people are the ones that are coming into the hospital, ending up uh, being admitted. So that second dose is also important. You are seeing that it's not just the unvaccinated, but those who are not completely vaccinated. Yes, definitely. Yes. 
In San Diego County, 69% of the eligible population has been fully vaccinated, which is just shy of that 75% goal mark. How much of the population needs to be fully vaccinated to really see a stop in this uptick in cases? That's a great question uh, because, you know, when we talk about the percentage needed to be vaccinated before you reach that herd immunity, it also depends on the virus itself. So for things like measles, you need a 90, 92% vaccination rate to get that protection because it is more infectious, meaning it's more easily transmitted. For the ones that are less likely to transmit, obviously you can have a lower level. Now that number has been debated. Uh, Dr. Fauci had once said that it needs 90%. A lot of people for the flu, uh, 70 to 80%. Right now um, in San Diego County, we've administered over 4.1 million doses of vaccine. So we're doing much better than the state uh, and we're doing definitely much better than the country. But again, it's really that unvaccinated or incompletely vaccinated population that we're looking at. To reach herd immunity, I would say it's probably somewhere between 80 to 90 percent is where we need to be to protect the people who are unvaccinated. So having the people who are vaccinated protect the people who are unvaccinated, we would need to reach about 80 to 90 percent. Cases of the Delta variant were increasing exponentially in previous weeks. But the latest county update actually seems to show that that Delta variant is slowing. How prominent are Delta variant infections in the, ca- in the caseload that you and your team are working on? The Delta variant for last Wednesday so um, was 122 cases. So it shot up very quickly and then it uh, slowed down. And, you know, part of the reason could be what I term to as the vaccine firewall, right? We get as many people vaccinated as possible. So even the vaccinated protects the unvaccinated. And if we can have a strong enough force, and I believe this is the case because San Diego, we've been very aggressive as a county uh, with the help of the um, health and human services of the county and all the health system working together. We've been able to, to hold it at bay better than I think um, other counties have been. In your opinion, do you think the county should reinstate its mask mandate? The mask protects the um, others more than it protects yourself. It does protect yourself if you wear the mask, but it's really, if you're carrying the virus and you wear a mask, you really limit the spread. So it is a community benefit, meaning I protect you and you protect me. Um, The mask mandate will definitely slow uh, the virus spread around. So yes, I think it is a good idea. Outdoors is a different um, situation, but indoors, definitely. Finally, for people listening right now, what do you recommend they do to stay safe and healthy as we continue to see these numbers rise? I think get vaccinated. If you're even thinking about it, get vaccinated. It is the best way to protect you from catching COVID, spreading COVID, or dying from COVID. There's great evidence that um, uh, the vaccine itself prevents you from getting it, but also prevents you from dying from it. Um, I think before the Delta variant was um, started taking off, we knew that um, the cases of getting infected or breakthrough infection was like one in 10,000. And the death uh, goes from one in 545 to one in half a million or more. So it is a great way to, to, to protect you, your family, and our community. Let's help each other, protect each other, uh, get vaccinated, um, and that will stop the Delta variant. 
I know people keep talking about Delta, 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 but really the answer is vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. So let's get out there and, and take care of each other. I've been speaking with Dr. William Singh, a hospitalist at Kaiser Permanente San Diego. Thank you. Thank you. Massive wildfires continue to burn in California. And of the two largest, the Dixie Fire has been burning for the last week near the recently fire-ravaged town of Paradise. It scorched more than 103,000 acres and as of this morning is only 17% contained. The Beckworth Complex Fire, burning for more than two weeks near Reno, has destroyed more than 100,000 acres. While huge fires are burning across the state, in rural areas, even a small brush fire can be devastating. One unincorporated community in Tulare County is struggling to recover after a fire burned down a lifeline for the community earlier this month. Aziz Hassan walks through the remains of his trailer home and the mini-mart that his family has owned for more than 50 years in Poplar, On July 9th, he says a power line that ran through a tree in between his property and his neighbors sparked. It caught fire on this tree, the first tree. It flamed that up from on top, started going down. Once it hit the floor, then the CVA garage caught on fire. The CVA is the Central Valley Empowerment Alliance. It's a community-based organization that was supposed to hold a youth vaccination event that day, according to Executive Director Mari Perez Ruiz. No kids were injured, but the supplies intended for them were destroyed. We expected over 400 students to come from all over the area. And we had backpacks filled with supplies, lunch boxes. Uh, we had over $100,000 of clothing from Forever 21. While the CVA's garage caught on fire, the only structural damage was on the roof. Still, she says the items inside the garage, including six quinceañera dresses, canned food, and school supplies, are unsalvageable. And I I recognize that even in the midst of all of this, we are one of the luckier ones. Others weren't so lucky. The Porterville Fire Department said the cause of the blaze is still under investigation. What residents know for sure is that within 30 minutes, the fire had destroyed two trailer homes and damaged another house. It also burned Adams Market, the mini-mart that was home to four immigrant-owned businesses. They were the lifeline for people living in the community and surrounding areas. People come from far to shop, to uh, cash their checks, um, to get their hair done, to transfer monies to their um, families. Families living in Mexico, Central America, and Yemen. She says most residents in Poplar are undocumented and low-income. Now, the only business left in their community is another small grocery store. Even though we are in the Central Valley, we provide food for the world. We find ourselves in a food desert. And when one of our two grocery stores, the oldest one in town, becomes ashes, it has an impact that is beyond popular. Cesar Leonel Cruz Chavez, who rented a room next door to Adams Market, needs to find immediate housing. Right now, we're not sleeping there. We're sleeping in our cars. Chavez says he works the night shift at a dairy farm three minutes away. That's where he showers. He then heads to his car to sleep in the record-breaking heat. I waste more gas, but I turn on the air conditioning, and well, 
there I am struggling. Marie Perez Ruiz says the Red Cross offered the displaced people $500 vouchers for hotels, but that only covered about three nights in the area. And she says the community is facing a housing crisis, making it more difficult for Cesar and the other 11 displaced people to find a place to live. Finding housing, you know, the, the only option for many would be to move out of, of the community. And that, that's displacement, just because there's no housing available. That's why she says she's reached out to State Senator Melissa Hurtado and County Supervisor Dennis Thompson for help. Senator Hurtado says she will do what she can to connect the community with resources that can help. In the meantime, Perez Ruiz says the community will focus on rebuilding. I'm Mari Bolaños. This story was part of the Central News Collaborative, which is supported by the Central Valley Community Foundation, with technology and training support by Microsoft. Homeowners in high-risk wildfire areas will soon be able to get more insurance coverage at a lower cost, according to a state court ruling this month. The decision expands the coverage California's so-called insurer of last resort must offer to consumers. The California Fair Access to Insurance Requirements Plan, or FAIR plan, has been offering fire-only policies to people who can't get traditional homeowners insurance because of wildfire risk. The ruling allows the State Insurance Commission to order the FAIR plan to include insurance coverage for things like theft and liability. Joining me is Amy Bach. She is executive director of United Policyholders, a nonprofit that advocates for consumers. Amy, welcome to the program. Maureen, thanks so much for having us on. Now, California's incredibly destructive wildfires in recent years have led up to the creation of the FAIR plan. Tell us why it was needed. The insurance industry uh, is like any other uh, profit-oriented industry, and uh, they have uh, looked at wildfire risk in California and decided almost in a sort of a herd-like way uh, that they are less interested in selling insurance to customers in wildfire-prone areas of the state. So that meant that those residents suddenly had a big problem on their hands. Many of them came to our organization for help and to the California Department of Insurance. And the bottom line, the FAIR plan is a very important plan, and it's not perfect, and this ruling is trying to make it a little bit better. Who makes up the FAIR plan insurers? Are are these private insurance companies? Yes, primarily the FAIR plan is run by a governing board uh, that is consists of mostly insurance company executives. Uh, there, uh, there's a there's a public member, um, the governor, and the insurance commissioner has some role as well. Primarily, though, uh, it's private insurance companies that call the shots on how the FAIR plan runs. So the FAIR plan stepped in to cover fire risk for many homes, but that's all the insurance the plan would provide. What did homeowners do for the other protections a traditional insurance policy would give them? They either went bare, didn't have insurance for things like um you know, your dishwasher hose breaks and there's a flood, um, the fair plan wouldn't pay for that. You know, the, uh, somebody trips on your property, sues you, the fair plan wouldn't, wouldn't cover that. So either people went bare for those exposures, those risk exposures, or they could buy 
something called a difference in conditions policy. And there hadn't been a whole lot of options for those uh, difference in conditions policies up until uh, about a year or two ago when uh, suddenly there was a demand in the market for more of these. They're gap fillers. You can call them DIC policies, gap fillers. Um, The consumer demand, more people were going into the fair plan, finding out that they didn't have full coverage and then wanting to, to fill the gap and then shopping for a DIC. So while a couple of years ago, there would have just been a handful of DIC options. Now there are many, most insurers uh, started selling these gap fillers so that they could hold on to customers even after they went uh, to the fair plan. And are those gap filler policies expensive? Yes. You know, we're hearing uh, quotes from, from anywhere from, um, you know, 3000 to as high as 20000 depending on the size of the house and the location. So state insurance commissioner, Ricardo Lara, ordered the Fair Plan Association to broaden its coverage options. The Fair Plan refused. Why did they refuse? The insurers that run the program uh, really uh, don't, well, they don't really like the program that much, to be honest. Um, it's an involuntary program, so they have to participate. And I think, um, you know, insurance executives uh, are always, uh, you know, looking at the bottom line. And I think they they felt, well, uh, we don't want the fair plan to be competing um, in the, you know, with, with private options. And uh, they want to limit the fair plan's payout exposure because, uh, they some of that money comes out of their uh, you know out of their resources. The private insurers pay you know have a have a um, proportional share in paying losses that the fair plan uh, has to pay out on. So the court ruled that the state has the authority to order fair to provide expanded coverage. How quickly could that expanded coverage go into an effect? My guess, it's not going to be tomorrow. Uh, my guess is uh, that the fair plan may uh, is likely to pursue all avenues of appeal and or reconsideration. Well, this is a victory for homeowners in high-risk fire areas. But in the larger picture, isn't the high cost of insurance one of the factors that's meant to discourage people from living in high-risk fire areas, considering that most of our wildfires are caused by human activity? Absolutely. Uh, Maureen, there's no question uh, that the uh, that the risk of wildfires has increased. And yes, um, to a certain extent, the cost of your insurance relates to your risk to a, to a large extent. You know, that said, there are a lot of people that are living that are getting charged um, a lot more than they had been being charged for their home insurance that don't live in the highest risk areas. So we're, we're pursuing solutions on a number of levels. There's no question, you know, that there should be, um, there should not be new development, new building going on in WUI, in the wildland urban interface at the same rate that it had been happening, you know, that we now know that um, it's just, it, it's just too risky for, um, for there to be large numbers of people living in areas that that have a habit of burning. Uh, However, you know, this is, it's all a matter of degree, right? You know, somebody has been living in an area their whole lives um, and and suddenly, you know, they're they're being priced out because of the cost of insurance. That doesn't sit well with people. 
The damage figure for last year's wildfire season in California is estimated at $10 billion in property damage. How is the FAIR plan going to be able to handle losses like that now or in the future? Well, they do have the full um, financial strength of all the participating insurers. You know, it's actually technically it's an association, the FAIR plan of 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 multiple insurance companies. So each one of them has their own financial resources uh, and their own reinsurance. You know, so the fair plan, their financial strength uh, has, uh, has to meet state standards. And so, you know, it's, as, as things stand now, you know, the number, the fair plan can handle the number of customers that they've got, um, at least they should be able to, uh, if their policy count continues to grow at the same rate it's been growing, the coverage is going to continue to be expensive uh, and the state may need to uh, come up with some more creative uh, solutions to to making sure that the fair plan has all the the reserves and the financial capacity that it needs to meet its obligations. And I've been speaking with Amy Bach. She's executive director of United Policyholders, a nonprofit that advocates for consumers. Amy, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Christina Kim in for Jade Hindman. Oceanside will soon have its first year-round homeless shelter, but who will it be open to? KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne gives us the details of what we can expect to see early next year. A school that once served at-risk students will soon serve Oceanside's homeless. Ocean Shores High School, located on Oceanside Boulevard in El Camino Real, will turn into the city's first year-round homeless shelter. Didn't think we would get it, and uh, in the end, they selected us to be their service provider, and I can't tell you how excited we are. Donnie D is the president of the San Diego Rescue Mission. It's different for us because we own our properties, we own our assets, but what I love about this is it's an opportunity for the public and the private to work together on behalf of people who are living on the streets. The rescue mission, which will operate the Oceanside Shelter, currently operates a 360-bed shelter in downtown San Diego. While the San Diego location will serve as a model for the Oceanside Shelter, there are some differences. That property in Oceanside is going to be a drop-off facility. We'll work very closely with the hot team in Oceanside, with their police department. We'll work very closely with other agencies, and they will refer people experiencing homelessness that need a place to stay to the San Diego Rescue Mission Ocean Shores campus. The Oceanside Shelter will be open to men, women, and families. Leanna Quirk and her husband have been homeless for over four years and are now staying in a donated RV. 
They know all too well the need for shelters for families. There's nothing for families. That's the hardest part. Me and my husband are married 20 years. And even when we went to the, the hotel program, they kind of told us, well, would you guys be willing to separate and get rid of your dogs? But we don't want to be separated, and I can't get rid of my dogs. Quirk's dogs became her support when she lost her children to foster care and when she started getting seizures. Quirk thinks the rescue mission's shelter will be great news to the homeless in the area. I know a lot of people that want help, you know, and unfortunately they don't know how to get it. The shelter will offer 50 beds with overnight and day use for 30 days. Again, Donnie D. And they'll have 30 days to stay there and it'll be through that relationship that we'll figure out, do you need to go downtown and be a part of the long-term program? Do you need to go to detox? Do you need a skilled nursing facility? Uh, we'll do triage at these facilities and figure out what's their path forward. The rescue mission's plans first start with a remodel of the existing facility. It's got um, a bunch of individual rooms that were classrooms and we will break up those rooms around gender and and around family uh, orientation. But does the plan account for sexual orientation? Some people are raising the question. Max Disposti is the executive director of the North County LGBTQ Resource Center. He says a large part of the homeless population identifies as LGBTQ and the lack of inclusiveness pushes them away from shelters. You know, there is a reason why our population, queer population, prefers to sleep under the bridge, literally. You know, we're using public land and resources um, they, they are supposed to guarantee that protection. Disposti says he's concerned the rescue mission's plan excludes the LGBTQ homeless. What is your track record? What do you do when a trans person comes in? How do you protect them? Disposti says community relationships are very important when it comes to referring people to agencies for help. In order for us to do a referral to another service provider that can have services that we don't have, like housing and so forth, it, we ask a lot of questions. Says, Okay, is your staff trained? If he's trained, who did the training? When they were training? Donnie D said the San Diego Rescue Mission has never denied access to services based on religious belief or sexual identity. He says he welcomes community partners to the Oceanside facility. We're so committed to that approach that we'll actually have office space uh, in our facility at Ocean Shores for other agencies because we want that kind of relationship. This just isn't our thing. It's not just the San Diego Rescue Mission thing. It's the community of Oceanside project, and we want to serve that city well. If approved, remodeling of the facility will start later this year, and the shelter is expected to be up and running by next year. Joining me is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, welcome. Thanks, Maureen. How was the San Diego Rescue Mission chosen to run Oceanside's homeless shelter? Well, this decision to have the San Diego Rescue Mission um, run Oceanside's shelters came as a surprise to many. It was a topic at several city council meetings. A preliminary decision had already been made on a different organization. But in the end, they voted on the rescue mission for one major difference in the plans. And, and it's a big one. You know, the rescue mission would not need any city funding to operate while the other organization requested a million dollars in annual operating costs from the city. So that was that was a big major difference that ultimately led to this decision. Uh, were there any homeless service providers in the running who were more familiar with Oceanside and its homeless population? 
Well, the other organization in consideration was Interfaith Community Services, and they were actually the organization recommended by the Oceanside City staff and Housing Commission to run the shelter because of their very presence and track record in North County. They already have several offices in place throughout North County. They work with Oceanside's Homeless Outreach Team, they work with the Veterans Association, and they recently opened a Motel of Healing in Escondido to expand their services. After the city's recommendation, everyone thought Interfaith would be the one, but the city decided to have both organizations come back and present their plans. And again, the biggest difference were the operating costs the rescue mission wasn't requesting in order to operate. The homeless services that are provided by the rescue mission in downtown San Diego sound very different from what Oceanside intends to do. For instance, will there be any of the rescue mission's faith-based rehab set up on the Ocean Shores site? Yeah, you know, we we took a tour of the downtown San Diego Rescue Mission's shelter, and there are some differences. Um, for example, in Oceanside, there will not be any long-term residential housing like we see at the mission's downtown location. But Donnie D., the CEO of the Rescue Mission, tells me that the downtown location will be an option for people staying in the Oceanside shelter. So while the location is a 30-day stay in Oceanside, within those 30 days, options will be explored as to what that person needs and wants. Do they want to join the faith-based residential program downtown? Do they need rehab? Do they need a nursing facility? So all those options will be explored at the Oceanside shelter that could ultimately leave them downtown. How else is the Oceanside shelter different from the rescue mission's downtown San Diego shelter? You know, another big difference, Donnie D told me that the Oceanside location will be open to men, women, and families. That's something different from their emergency shelter downtown that only takes women and children. Another difference is that the Oceanside shelter will be a drop-off location. Donnie D says he will work with the Oceanside Homeless Outreach Team and other agencies to refer people to that shelter. Now, Donnie D, as you say, the CEO, uh, president of San Diego Rescue Mission, says that they'll be using a triage concept to determine the next step for people at the shelter. But does Oceanside have any sort of next step services for the homeless or will they have to go to other areas of the county? You know, there are a couple of organizations and resources that assist people experiencing homelessness in Oceanside, but nothing with a permanent shelter that is open to everyone. The city of Oceanside does have that motel voucher program, but many of the people I've spoken to say that that hasn't been very successful for that very reason. Once they're in the motel, the next step is either relocation or separation from their families if they want to secure housing. So I'm really curious to see how many people choose to move into the mission's residential program from Oceanside to downtown, because ultimately, you know, that is relocating from an area that they know. And why was the head of the North County LGBTQ Resource Center concerned about the choice of the rescue mission? Max Disposti, the executive director of the North County LGBTQ Center, says that the San Diego Rescue Mission doesn't have much of a track record in North County, just to start, and he doesn't know of them working with any LGBTQ center at their downtown location. For instance, Interfaith Community Services has faith-based programs as well, but they have actually invited Disposti to look into any barriers preventing the LGBTQ community from seeking help from them. So he's concerned that the rescue mission won't have that inclusiveness because they haven't reached out to him or any other LGBTQ organization that he knows of. 
And another point that Disposti brought up was that this shelter in Oceanside is being placed on city-owned land, public land, meaning it needs to be open to everyone. Okay, so the new Oceanside shelter is supposed to be up and running next year. But will there be anywhere for unsheltered people to go in Oceanside this winter? You know, Maureen, aside from the motel voucher program or programs outside of the city, I don't think so. And, you know, we're also dealing with the high population of homeless people that are on the streets now. Many of the shelters that are set up are already at full capacity. I really wouldn't be surprised if the rescue mission's shelter gets full as soon as it opens. But Donnie D also said that they are in escrow for another shelter in the South Bay. So if that deal closes, it could be more beds to filter people into once they're all set up and running. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out in the next couple of months. All right, then. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. July is Pride Month here in San Diego County, and while many of the events are centered around Hillcrest, this year the celebrations are moving further north. Escondido is hosting its first ever Pride celebration this Saturday at Kit Carson Park, a historic moment for the traditionally conservative city. For more on the significance of this event, we're joined by the organizer of Escondido's inaugural Pride, Liel Muleve. Welcome to Midday. Hi, thank you. So what inspired you to organize Escondido's first ever Pride event? Um, Well, I grew up here in Escondido, and it definitely has always been very conservative. Um, I wanted to bring more visibility to our LGBT community that there is quite a bit of here in Escondido. So we wanted to finally provide a free event that our LGBT community could come together and enjoy. Why do you think it's important to host a Pride event up in inland North County as opposed to, you know, in Hillcrest or where other celebrations have traditionally been hosted? I think a lot of times our BIPOC communities don't always get a chance to celebrate in the far off prides. So it was nice to have something that was hometown, free that they can come and enjoy and be around their local citizens. As you've been planning the festivities, who have you centered as the event's primary audience? You know, who are you really making this event for? Uh, This event is mostly focused for our BIPOC LGBT community that normally gets pushed out of those kind of spaces. Can you say a little bit more? Why is that so important to you? Why are you seeing that as a as a real need to center the BIPOC LGBTQ community this year? Um, so it is important for our BIPOC LGBT community to get um, more visibility and representation within our community because um, they're so underserved. Even in a lot of LGBT spaces, Um, It's predominantly white leadership in those spaces. So we wanted the chance for our BIPOC communities to come out, enjoy, and also be able to connect with other people. Do you think Escondido Pride is just going to have a different flavor? Is it going to be different than other prides that we have in the county? How will you make it so it's, you know, perfectly and uniquely Escondido? The way um, we're making it Escondido is through the culture that we're targeting Like I said, this event is BIPOC focused, so we are um, bringing a lot of our Latinx culture into um, this event. And we're mostly trying to make it so that this is so community based and focused that isn't based off of corporations or anything like this. This was mostly all done through donations, through local businesses, through local community volunteers and organizers. Um, So it's really a community based event. 
So Escondido's long been a more conservative community. Have you received any pushback against the event? No, we haven't actually received any pushback against the event. We've received a lot of loving support from the community, but we are going to be staying very vigilant for the day of. When you say you're going to be staying vigilant, what are you going to be vigilant for exactly? Uh, We do have um, security that will be keeping an eye out for any kind of counter protests or any problem makers, really. And have you heard from anybody in the LGBTQ community who's just so thankful that this is finally happening, you know, in their own backyard, in their own town? Yes, we almost receive a message every day, if not multiple, from citizens just telling us how much this means to them and how excited that they are to see this happen in their neighborhood in a place where they weren't always felt welcome. Escondido Mayor Paul McNamara told KBBS that he's excited for the event because it shows that the city is becoming more inclusive and welcoming. As someone that lives in Escondido, do you see that? Do you see that the city is changing in some ways? I think that... The parts of the city that have always been ready for change are now stepping forward. Um, I'm not sure if we've created change in the spaces that they didn't want to move forward, but um, we are taking charge of that change and we're demanding it now. Okay, so I want to get back to Escondido Pride. I mean, it is a huge celebration. It is the first one ever. What events and performances do you have planned for this Saturday? Oh, we have a lot of really great performances. We have a few bands that are coming out. We have some drag performances. We have a dance crew that's going to be performing. um, And they're going to be going all throughout the day. So it's going to be hard to walk away from the stage. We do have a dog competition, art gallery, some games for children to play with and some free activities as well. And do you hope to make Escondido Pride an ongoing annual event? Uh, Absolutely. This is the first one, but it's definitely not the last. And we're going to keep pushing to have it bigger and better each year. And hopefully it'll become a pride destination just like other events. I've been speaking with Liel Maleve, organizer of Escondido Pride, which will take place this Saturday at Kit Carson Park from 2 to 7.30 p.m. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Christina Kim, in for Jade Heinemann with Maureen Cavanaugh. Shinpei Takeda grew up crossing international borders. Eventually, the Japanese artist landed in San Diego, where he founded the Asha Project, a San Diego-based nonprofit that focuses on teaching kids how to use photography and art to tell their own stories. But Takeda says it wasn't until he moved south of the border to Tijuana that he learned to start calling himself an artist. Takeda has an exhibit on view at Centro Cultural Tijuana, or CICUT, through August 8th. In a short bonus episode of KBBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, Takeda talks to host Alan Lilienthal and producer Kinsey Moreland about how crossing multiple borders have shaped his life and career. We just walked in. I haven't been here 
in a long time because of the pandemic. So we're gonna go meet Shinpei. It's, I don't know much about him, but I've heard a lot of, I have friends who work for him. He's a big presence in the cross-border region. I feel like just his name, you hear his name a lot. So Shinpei is well known in our region as a border artist because he lived and made art in Tijuana and San Diego for decades. But these days, he's truly a global sort of borderless artist who travels all over the world showing his art. Right now, he's living in Germany, but his life actually started in Japan. Yes, I was born in, in Japan, in Osaka. Okay. Yeah. And then I was in, uh, my parents was always, I worked for a company, they were always getting sent to different places. So I was in Germany for five years, my childhood, then I was in Chicago for a little bit, then in, back to Japan, and for university I went to North Carolina. Really? And then from there I came to San Diego and I started this organization called the Aja Project. The Aja Project, by the way, is a nonprofit that works with refugee youth and other kids by teaching them photography and other artistic and storytelling skills. It's a great organization. Great, thank you. And then now it's 20 years, and then, then I was uh, kind of tired of, um, you know, American, um, I think, what shall we say? You know, you come to the U.S. and you want, you learn language and you master and you use it, and you become kind of tired of your um, um, individuality, you know? <laughs> Too much I, 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 because when I first learned I, I want, I, you know, and it's, it's a, the language, you have to insist, I want, I think, I believe, you know, you know, you have to insist, you have to fight for it. That's the only way to survive in the American society, I think. And that leaves you very lonely, you know, I think, with your eye. So I got bored, and I was like, wow, what's this distance between people, you know? <laughs> so when I came down, you know, because my friends wanted, back then, wanted to be um, Lucha Libre, so I used to come down with him, and he rented an apartment, and I started living there, and... That was your first time in Tijuana? That was 2004 or three or something, yeah. And then the first people I met was in um, artists, you know? Um, for me, the artist is a little different than artista, you know? When you say artista, here, at least in Mexican cities, at least, you know, or in TJ too, you have a different kind of responsibility. I think they treat you a little bit like uh, um, kind of a documentarian of the city. You are the, they treat you like you are kind of like the type, you know, documenting machine of what's happening now. So after meeting more and more artists in Tijuana, Shinpei realized that he too had something to say about what was happening in the world. I started wanting to, because of my work with the Aja Project was trying to give voice, trying to work with the young people, uh, people from immigrants, you know, people, refugee kids, you know, and I was trying to put their work so big, I was making their photographs so big, and. So on, and I realized I also wanted me, my voice. <laughs> so I was wanted to find my voice in here in TJ. I think people were just, you know, doing things from nothing. And that really gave me a kind of a courage and, mm. and uh, kind of a guts to start making my stuff. So this is like my, my art school in Tijuana, the city. Wow. So, and I found here, I think in TJ is like, Super great to like start something, you know. You don't think about anything, you just let's do it, you know. And then the explosiveness of starting something. But I think here I couldn't quite learn how to tie the last knot, you know, 
how to complete the works. It's hard to get into details because it's so much stuff going on here and it's like... And you see like half-finished buildings all the time. Like I don't see that anywhere more than in Tijuana. Like this like the, the explosiveness is there to create but then to, to finish it well it's like... It's called Obra Negra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, that's the beautiful thing about it because it's so much space to do stuff, you know? So because of this feeling of Shimpei's, the feeling that he could easily create things in Tijuana but could never quite figure out how to finish them, he decided to move back to Germany where he had spent part of his childhood. He says he felt like the country's long history and its culture, which he remembers as being oriented towards efficiency and getting things done, felt like the necessary next step in his career as an artist. Forever, or no, no, no. I mean, Germany is also right now. It's super immigrant society. So now it's you know it's like a California 20 years ago in some ways. Mm-hmm. And yet there, there's a part of them. They're like very conscious. They're more green. They're, you know, it feels like it's a well or you know a society well functioning society. But there's also a lot of frictions. A lot of frictions. You know, so. In some ways, they're 10 years ahead of USA, but in some ways, they're like 10 years ahead of, you know, behind California in, in just kind of dealing with others, you know, how do you deal with others. So will you always kind of consider Tijuana home base? You always kind of have one? I mean, this, we see what happens after this, because this show was like one of the something that I really wanted to make. put, yeah. make it is. And after here, it's like, it's, I'll have to find some... New thread. New threats for my new future, you know, and then now, like, I mean, you learn in transborder, I guess, to, to what you learn from the, doing a transborder life is that there is always so much way of going through the border, right? And you always learn to improvise here. You know, the point is not to break down the walls, but you just, you just, just you have to find the back door entry, <laughs> you know? I think that's what you learn, you know. Because in, in Germany, it's, exam- it's so interesting. It's you, from where I am, you drive 30 minutes to Holland. There, when I was a kid, there used to be border. Like the linea here, no? Not so many, like, three hours lines, but there was always a linea. I remember this as a kid, and now there's, like, nothing. And you see the remains of the checkpoint. So the borders come and go, you know, and this one's getting bigger and bigger from the time. I mean, when you, when he, I was first year, it was like this. Nada. <laughs> yeah, there was like nothing. I mean, you could still jump a little bit, you know. Now it's gotten more hype, hyper intense. You know? mm-hmm. So, but it comes and go, I think. You know? So. All right. Borders, well, borders come and go. They do. Gotta remember that. Yeah, and you just have to keep like finding ways to, you know, ne- you know, get through it and. Don't try to go from the main entry point because <laughs> it takes too much time and too much energy. You know? mm-hmm. I like it. Find the back door. And that was transborder artist Shinpei Takeda talking with Port of Entry's Alan Lilienthal and Kinsey Moreland about his exhibition, On View in Tijuana, through August 8th. Listen to the full episode, which includes an audio tour of his show, online at portofentrypod.org. Or find Port of Entry wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. 
This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.